If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Hello and welcome to BBC History Magazine's weekly podcast. I'm Dave Musgrove, editor of the magazine, and this is the third of our January 2012 editions. Remember, BBC History Magazine is on sale in all good news agents and on subscription. Our website is historyextra.com. Follow us on twitter.com slash historyextra or facebook.com slash historyextra. Over the next few months, the centenary of Captain Robert Falcon Scott's tragic last expedition is ongoing. So we've got an Antarctic exploration special this week. We really wanted people to walk away feeling that there was more to Scott's last expedition than the South Pole journeys. That was Ellen Simonson of the Natural History Museum talking about Scott's scientific legacy. It's rare that you have this combination of great technical achievement with extraordinarily powerful narrative and the most remarkable landscape that there is on the Earth. And that was Sophie Gordon of the Royal Collection on the power of the Antarctic photographs taken on Scott and Shackleton's expeditions. Captain Scott's final Antarctic voyage is best known for the arduous march to the Pole and the death of Scott and his companions. However, as a new exhibition at London's Natural History Museum reveals, the expedition was as much a scientific endeavour as a feat of exploration. BBC History magazine's deputy editor Rob Attar caught up with the museum's exhibition manager, Ellen Simonson, to discover more about Scott's scientific legacy. What exactly is the focus of this exhibition that you're running at the museum? So it's 100 years since uh, Scott went on his second expedition to Antarctica. And since then, um, the story has really been overshadowed by the journey to the South Mm. Pole and the tragic deaths of the Polar Party. And so the focus here is really bringing out the scientific expedition it really was to look at the expedition from a broader perspective and look at a broader range of people who were on it and look at the scientific work they did when they were there. So not just the pole journeys, going beyond the South Pole journey. Was there always supposed to be a scientific angle to the expedition? Yes. Scientific expeditions to Antarctica weren't new at the time, Mm. but this was the broadest scientific expedition, had the broadest scientific programme at the time. And um, Scott had a big team of scientists with him, a bigger team than anyone else had taken before. So even though... Scott was really interested in getting to the South Pole. That was one of his main aims. The scientific work was also really important to him, and he was clearly interested Mm. in the science. Um, So what were some of the key scientific achievements of the expedition? So they carried out work across many different fields. 
uh, looking at uh, biology, zoology, meteorology, geology, glaciology. And I think one of the things that stands out is the work in glaciology, particularly because it was a really new field at the time. And so the, the reports uh, that were published by the physicist who worked on the glaciology is still a classic in his field. So they were starting to build theories about how glaciers work large scale before people had looked at glaciers in, in the Alps and they're much smaller. So just ideas about how glaciers form, how fast they flow and how they shape the landscape really. And so you're saying that some of this scientific research is still important now? People still build on it to this day? Definitely. I mean, Scott's expedition was really a part of building up the knowledge about Antarctica, and we're still doing that today. If you look at the meteorological work they did, they came back with a two years' unbroken record of meteorological readings and that was the longest record at the time and that's still used as baseline data today so it's reference points looking at differences in temperature um, and they also did some of the first work with uh, weather balloons so using weather balloons to measure uh, temperature of the upper air which has not really been done before right. so they did some groundbreaking work you said he had a team of scientists with him. Mm. Was Captain Scott himself quite involved in scientific work? He was involved in the sense that he, has to, he had a real interest in the mm. science and he um, made sure that his scientists were good and what the work they produced was good. He wasn't a scientist himself, but by recruiting uh, scientists that um, were well-trained and knew what they were doing, he uh, then didn't have to worry too much mm. about the science because he knew that his staff would carry it out um, in the way that he wanted it to. So he really trusted his scientists to do the work. And did this scientific work, did it go on right the way to the South Pole on his march? I think you would say yes. I mean, most of it took place um, in other areas, but what's important to remember is that actually it's not just Antarctica which is the focus, it's on the way to Antarctica, they right. do scientific work. Um, the ship goes off in the winter and goes off to New Zealand and they continue doing scientific work on board, as well as the mainland party in Antarctica. In terms of the journey to the South Pole, what they do is that they record their journey and what's, what they see on the journey, so mountain ranges, sketching mountain ranges, mm. um, rec collecting geological specimens um, on the way. And you have to remember here that at this time, only Shackleton and his companions had yeah. been here. So this is really about learning about the inland Antarctica. Um, so yes, scientific work did take place on the way to the South Pole, but here I think you, you would say that the main aim was to get to the South Pole, right. even though scientific work did take place on that journey too. So how difficult was it to do scientific work in such difficult conditions? Well, it can be horrendously difficult. If you, if you look at the winter journey, which is really the most extreme example, and this is where three men, um, including the chief of scientific staff, went off to collect emperor penguin um, embryos in the middle of the winter, because that's yeah. when they uh, breed. Uh, they set off 
in the middle of the winter, it's completely dark, it's incredibly cold, and you have to manhaul in cotton and wool to get to this place. And the fact that they made it back alive is a miracle, really. Um, but they managed to collect th um, three um, penguin eggs, and those are still in our collections today. Um, and really here, the importance of those embryos was to look at, it was really the first time embryos, pe embryo, penguin embryos have been collected at that particular stage and they wanted to look at um, different stages of development of embryos. So I mean something, I guess a lot of people have been watching something like Frozen Planet recently, mm. was the wildlife aspect quite important to their research? I would say yes. It was important in terms of building that knowledge about Antarctica, mm. so it's about rather than they did have some, in terms of the wildlife, they did have some specific research questions, but a lot of those research questions came about when they were there, seeing around them what was happening, mm. and um, so studying the wildlife was really important for building that knowledge about Antarctica, so collecting specimens, for example, or studying uh, penguins. And there was a study on the Adélie penguin um, breeding season, and that was the first time that a, a study like that had been made. And it was really, I guess you can call it a groundbreaking research, because uh, actually if you look at Frozen Planet now, you see the Adélie penguins, and you yeah. see them, you know, nicking rocks from the other penguins, and that's something that Levick, who was um, the surgeon who observed the penguins on a Scots expedition, and he observed yeah. those behaviours there, and that was really the first time that had been studied in that way. And there was obviously quite a strong scientific focus on the expedition. Mm. Do you think that in any way reduce their chances of getting to the South Pole first because they had that, the kind of, the different focuses on it? I, do you know it's impossible to say? I think, I don't think so. I think the difference is in the different transport methods used. Yeah. So you have Amundsen um, being able to use dogs really well and he, him and his team were well trained in using them by indigenous peoples of Northern Europe. And you have Scott who's using well-established methods um, used by others at the time, but they were slower yeah. and they were using more men and they needed to transport more stuff. So I don't think the scientific aspects slow them down. I just think it was a different approach, but it's interesting if you look at the difference in terms of the expeditions, uh, the nature of the expeditions, yeah. then they're very different. So Amundsen, he was there to get to the pole first. Scott was there for a, a range of different reasons and he was there to build information about Antarctica as well as getting to the South Pole. And I suppose many people today will think that Scott's expedition was a failure because they didn't get to the South Pole first and then obviously died on the way back. But do you think because of the scientific legacy you, you can say that in some ways it was still a success? I think it was a huge success, depending on, of course, how you define success. But if you if you look at the number of people who were there yeah. and the kind of work they did and the exploration they did and um, the scientific results and the publications they, that came out of it, that still, uh, you know, is an important body of information about Antarctica today. I think, I don't think it's fair to call it a failure. Mm. Um, 
because it was purely because it was so much more than than the South Pole journey. So really, because of Scott's tragic death and then the myth that grew up around that, people don't really, it's unfortunately overshadowed what's, what the achievements of the expedition were. Yes, I think so. And it's not strange to see because the South Pole journey and the story around it is amazingly gripping mm. and it captures people's imagination. But I think the more you learn about it, the more you look into it, the more you see all the other people who were on the expedition and the other work they did, the other stories of human endeavour mm. uh, that took place. So it's overshadowed a lot of really fascinating stuff, not just the science, but other, other stories within, happening within the expedition. For example, you have a, a different party who's... Uh, who were on the mainland Antarctica at the same time as Scott and his main party. And um, they were originally known as the Eastern Party yeah. and then later became known as the Northern Party. And there were six men um, based in a different hut and they were doing exploration and scientific investigation around there. And then, because it wasn't as fruitful as they thought it would be to explore around there, it was quite difficult yeah. to get to places, uh, the ship picked them up transported them to a different place along the coast where they would be for a few weeks to explore and do scientific work and then be picked up and they only had provisions for a few weeks and they had summer clothing and, and tents yeah. and things like that and then the ship didn't get to them it just couldn't pick them up because of their eyes and the ship then had to turn back to New Zealand before it was too late and it froze into their eyes so there they were stranded six men facing an Antarctic winter and amazingly they survived in an ice cave which they dug into the ice um, using their rations really carefully um, but also using seal meat and penguin meat so they stocked up before the winter started burning blubber and surviving for months and then amazingly after that when sort of spring and warmer times came back they walked back to base camp for weeks and when you see the pictures of these blackened men and knowing that they had been in a cave for months and then walked back to base camp. That's an amazing story that people don't tend to know about. So people who come to the exhibition, what kind of things can they expect to see? They will see an amazing combination of real things that Scott and his team used, um, combined with scientific specimens that they collected. So you're looking at around 200 items mm. and we have um, polar clothes that they used, we have sledges and skis and cookers, things that they used when they were out sledging. And then we have items that they used when they were at base camp, so food items. And they ate quite well when they were at base camp. We have the expedition gramophone, we have letters and diaries, and we have scientific instruments like Edward Wilson's microscope, and we have Herbert Ponting's film camera. So really a nice mixture of items used on the expedition. And we're showing, we're reuniting those items with um, scientific collections that they brought back, really for the first time in 100 years, to tell that more complete story of the work they did when they were there. Do you think this exhibition might change people's views of the Terra Nova expedition? I really hope so. That's that was our intention. We really wanted people to walk away feeling that there was more to Scott's last expedition than the South Pole journeys, so knowing that it was much more and also feeling that actually it was worth it and the work they did was important. 
We don't always realise just how much our negative thoughts and experiences stick with us and weigh us down. You may find your brain constantly running through a highlight reel of bad moments. That comment your friend made last week that hurt your feelings. That frustrating thing your mum does. Or that silly thing you said in a meeting. Maybe it's time to get it all off your chest. Whether it's a tiny annoyance or something much bigger. Talking about it can give you some relief and lead you to a potential solution. That's where therapy comes in. It's a safe space to share whatever's weighing you down and learn to process it so your internal highlight reel can focus on the good stuff. And BetterHelp offers affordable online therapy on a schedule that works for you. Connect with a licensed therapist by text, phone or video call. Start the process in minutes and switch therapists anytime. Let it out with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash history extra today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P, dot com slash history extra. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. eBay Motors is here for the ride. With over 122 million parts, you can make sure your number one ride or die stays running smoothly. Brake kits, LED headlights, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only, exclusions apply. That was Ellen Simonson of the Natural History Museum. The exhibition, Scott's Last Expedition, will run at the museum from 20 January until 2 September this year. There is an entry charge. Find out more at the museum's website, nhm.ac.uk. Now it's time for our historical trivia moment. This week's bit of trivia has been provided to us by Benjamin Hollister from South Australia, who emailed in with this. I was doing some research today and came across the story of 18-year-old John Horwood of Bristol, who was short drop hanged in 1821 for the murder of a girl. After the execution, his body was used for dissection and his skin was tanned to make a cover for the bound copy of the murder trial documents. That gory fact is indeed correct, and in fact the book in question is on display in Bristol's newly opened M-Shed Museum. Furthermore, by serendipity, I interviewed the curator there about this very subject a little while ago, so we'll run the interview next week. If you'd like to email in with further historical facts, we'll gladly read them out if they're true and give you a name check in return. Email us at podcast at historyextra.com with those facts. Next up, Sophie Gordon is the curator of an exhibition at the Queen's Gallery by Buckingham Palace in central London, entitled The Heart of the Great Alone. This is a display of early 20th century photographs taken by two men, Herbert Ponting and Frank Hurley, who were respectively the photographers on the Antarctic expeditions led by Robert Falcon Scott and, subsequently, Ernest Shackleton. The photographs were presented to King George V, who recognised the inspirational qualities of both explorers, and thus they form part of the Royal Collection today. 
We're talking about polar photographs from uh, Scott and Shackleton's ex expeditions at the start of the 20th century. And there's two particular photographers who were involved in that, um, and we're going to talk about both of those people. Um, the first question is, is, you've got a lovely exhibition here with lots of brilliant photographs. How important was it that there was a visual record of these expeditions? Was it something that, that Scott and Shackleton insisted upon and needed to happen? Both of them, uh, both Scott and Shackleton, thought it was uh, extremely important to have photographers in their expedition teams. It was not the first time that photographers had gone to the Antarctic. Previous expeditions had had people with cameras on board, but those people had always had other duties to perform. When Scott asked Ponting to be part of the expedition. Um, he was asking Ponting to come ex to work exclusively as a photographer. And this is because he, Scott, really appreciated the value of having someone who could produce photographs, not just documenting the expedition, but producing images that functioned as works of art. So they recreated the atmosphere of being in the Antarctic. They were able to function as uh, spurs to the imagination, as well as telling the story of what had happened. And he wanted Ponting to have no other responsibility than to take photographs. So that's what happened. And Ponting went out and, and captured the landscape as well as documenting what was going on. Scott was then able to use these, or the plan was that Scott would be able to use these photographs to uh, tell the story back in Britain and they had tremendous uh, power uh, for fundraising I mean, it was a very practical purpose so having a photographer was extremely important and Shackleton then had seen uh, the effect and the power that Ponting's photographs had had following Scott's expedition and so he also appreciated the importance of having a photographer with him Okay, talk about Ponting. It's Herbert Ponting um, yeah. is, is his name. Um, did he have any experience of taking any, you know, in, in, taking photographs in an environment like this before he went, or was it just he was seemed to be a good photographer? Ponting was known as a travel photographer. Um, he had started his career in America, but very quickly he was uh, commissioned to go abroad to photograph in places like uh, Burma, India, China. Um, he was also involved in the Russo-Japanese War, and he was used to photographing in an environment that was very diff different to the, where he'd been living, to what he was used to in the States. Um, so he had this reputation as being someone who was um, prepared to go beyond uh, the sort of the norms for photographers at the time. And this was certainly one of the reasons that it was him that was asked to join the expedition. He was known as this travel, this expeditionary photographer. Um, and his photographs from these places ranged from documentary works to very... Um, aesthetically pleasing, artistic or picturesque work. So again, he, he demonstrated that he could cover the whole range of images, and I think that's probably why he was the one who was selected or asked to join with Scott. And on the expedition, was, was Scott saying, take a photo of that, there's a penguin, take a photograph of it? Or, or was he given free reign to take whatever he, he felt was, was, was most appropriate? 
He was given quite a free reign. Um, he was allowed to go out and photograph more or less what he wanted to do. And certainly this sometimes caused a bit of um, problem with everybody else because everyone else had to work very hard and was involved as a group in, in loading things or packing things or moving things around. Ponting was relieved of those duties, these expedition duties, and was allowed to go out and photograph whatever he wanted to. And the, so that is an indication of how important Scott saw this role of, of the photographer. Okay. And w- what about Shackleton's view then? Did he did he hold the same views? Because he obviously had his photographer go out there. Did did um, did Hurley have the same free reign? Um, Hurley also yes had a, had free reign, but of course because the uh, shape of Shackleton's expedition changed so very quickly, things started to go wrong at quite an early stage it meant that the situation for everybody involved changed at the same time. So Hurley, um, originally he had been intended to go via the South Pole with Shackleton. He was going to be a very integral member of the team, but he was going to be there just to take photographs. Once the expedition had gone wrong and things, they got stuck in the ice, Hurley had to be involved alongside everybody else in what was going on and he had to pitch in. But he was also allowed quite a considerable amount of time to take the photographs that he needed to. Perhaps actually we ought to just briefly go over the aims of the two <laughs> expeditions. So, um, so Scott, his plan was to go to the South Pole. Scott's plan was to reach the South Pole. He certainly wanted to be the first person to reach the Pole. Um, but in the process of doing so, he also intended to carry out numerous uh, experiments, scientific experiments, to collect data and to collect uh, objects, minerals, rocks, that sort of thing. Um, and he said repeatedly, as did other members of his team, that although they wanted to be the first, it was not going to be at the cost of everything else, of the scientific aspect of the expedition. Uh, was, was Ponting supposed to go on the expedition or was he supposed to stay at base camp? Ponting, um, Scott only intended that Ponting would remain uh, at base camp at the hut. Um, The plan was that when the expedition arrived they would spend about a year in this location around the hut making shorter expeditions. Ponting was there to record this and he made a few small um, journeys out into the ice but he was never going to be part of the team that went with Scott to the South Pole and so part of his role was to teach other people photography and that included the team who were going to go with Scott to the South Pole. Ponting spent a great deal of time instructing Scott, Wilson and Bowers uh, how to take photographs and how to deal with the particular conditions that they would encounter in the South Pole in order that they then had a photographic record of reaching the Pole and of, of getting there and coming back, they hoped, at that time. And that enabled them to take those famous photos tragic photos at the pole which are in the expedition which Ponting obviously wasn't there to take. Absolutely. So uh, when they got to the South Pole, Bowers was able to take a number of photographs and Wilson also took uh, a couple. And if you look closely at the photographs, you can see um, that they are holding in their hands a cord and that was the cord that released the shutter on the camera so that they could then, all of them, be in the photograph together. Okay. And and, and Shackleton then. So Shackleton's expedition, what was the aim of that? 
The original intention of Shackleton um, was to traverse Antarctica via the South Pole. Um, he wanted to make, he saw this as, as being the sort of the last great um, uh, polar achievement that was out there once the pole had already been reached by Scott and by Amundsen. So this, he wanted to cross Antarctica, the continent. In the end, though, this, this, he didn't even get close to achieving this because, of course, the ship became stuck in ice and drifted uh, considerably. And eventually the ship was crushed and went down. And so the story became one of survival, of trying to keep everybody alive on the ice and then of finding land and ultimately finding a way back home. And am I right in thinking that in the process of the ship being crushed, uh, Hurley lost a load of his negatives that he'd taken and had to dip into the icy water to retrieve he them? He did. He writes very um, evocatively about it as well, about this awful experience of... of the possibility that he's going to lose his negatives and his camera equipment. And so he gets into the icy, icy cold water and tries to save as much as he can while the ship is creaking and moving around him. But he's just so worried that he's going to lose some of these, these negatives. And of course, subsequently, he did have to make this awful decision about what he could keep and what would be lost because Shackleton made him select about... 120 or so of the negatives from the four to 500 that he'd already exposed. Um, and they sat together, Shackleton and Hurley, making this selection. And the ones that were rejected, they had to smash. And this was to stop Hurley being tempted to go back and get more negatives, which of course would increase the weight that they were carrying, because glass negatives are very heavy. Okay. Now, in terms of taking these photos, you look at the gallery and you see these amazing, beautiful images that they've managed to take. Um, obviously, I don't know enough about the history of photography, but it strikes me that, that those are very accomplished images they've managed to take. How, how did they manage to do that at the time? Was the, the equipment presumably was very good that they were using? Both of the photographers, Ponting and Hurley, were certainly using equipment that was state-of-the-art at the time. The, they were both using cameras that involved uh, using glass negatives. So even though film negative was in existence at this time, they chose to use glass negatives because this gave a much sharper, more defined image. It also gave the photographer much more control over the image that they were producing. Um, so this would involve a fairly large, cumbersome camera on a tripod each negative was a separate piece of glass, about um, five by seven or four by six inches in size. This negative would have to be prepared, um, then it would be put in the camera, the exposure would be made. And they're relatively fast exposures by this time, just a sort of second or less than that. Um, and then the negative would have to be fixed and developed. And Ponting had in the hut a darkroom set up and he was, in fact, the only member of the expedition who had his own separate room because he needed a dark room that shut out all the light from, from outside in order to develop uh, these negatives. And so he had his own room full of chemicals, full of all the different baths that you needed to wash and, and develop these negatives. And while he was in Antarctica, he made a set of contact prints so that he could just check the images. He could see what he was producing as they went along. And did they have any problems with the, with the cold and the conditions? Did the cameras stand up to the, to, to the Antarctic winter? 
cameras did stand up remarkably well, and they they both were also making films as well. And the film, uh, both the the film itself and the cameras survived uh, in very good condition. I think in some ways, actually, the cold helps. Um, it's, it's the stability that's important, and the colder the better, generally, for photography. They did have some problems when they moved from indoors to outdoors, or, or vice versa, and you get condensation and so on. So they used to sometimes go through different stages of gradually increasing the temperature. So you'd move from outside into a sort of uh, doorway or a lobby-type area, then you'd move into the main room, and then you'd move into the dark room as the temperature got warmer and warmer. It took a bit of time to acclimatise photographs. Right. I'm interested in the, in the exposure time. It's interesting that you said that because I was looking at some of the photos and there's ones of seals and, and, and penguins and such like, animals that move presumably, yes. um, which, which wouldn't have wanted to pose for too long. So they were able to just snap. It's and... pretty instantaneous by this time, yes. And so they weren't having to, to force people, you know, the, the members of the crew to pose for specific things. What you're looking at is actual events happening. Uh, there was a certain amount of posing. I think the exposure time is not as um, immediate as perhaps it is today. I mean, maybe you're looking at something like a quarter of a second, so that's long enough for someone to move mm. and spoil it. In the case of, of Ponting, uh, he acquired a reputation for making people stand around in the ice for ages and ages while he set up the shot and make sure they got into exactly the right place. And they referred to this standing around as um, ponting. I mean, they, you know, it was sort of the verb to stand and pont mm. as you waited to have your photograph taken. The peril of ponting for ponco, I think. I yes, that's right. <laughs> um, okay, so, so what, what sort of insights can we get into the exhibition from looking at these photographs? What, what, what do they tell us? Well, there, there are two different types of photographers at work, I think, with Ponting and Hurley. There is a difference in, in the way that they record what they're looking at. Hurley's work is far more documentary. So he is showing us what, what happened. And, of course, once the expedition starts to go so tremendously wrong, he is more aware than ever of the importance of documenting what is happening, even though he had no idea that anyone was ever going to see these photographs, of course. We didn't know that they were going to get back. Um, but he keeps on photographing, he keeps on documenting, and each aspect of the story is told. And he does that even when it means he has to manipulate negatives or shift the narrative by changing titles and captions. He's very aware that he has to keep on telling the story. Ponting, on the other hand, I think is more interested in uh, responses to the landscape and to the environment of, of Antarctica. His photographs are far less documentary than Hurley's. And his photographs, in some ways, they almost mislead the viewer. So they're not telling us what it's like to be in Antarctica. They're presenting uh, more of an imaginative space for us to recreate in our own minds and to think about what it might mean. Ponting's photographs are very still, they're very peaceful, they present uh, wide white spaces or icebergs dramatically uh, composed. And this stillness is, is not really, having spoken to people who've actually been there, it's, it's not like that. It's actually quite a noisy place. There's the wind whistling, the ice is creaking. It's, um, 
it's certainly not sort of still and peaceful. So we're getting a sort of slightly different uh, perspective, the eye of, a, of an artist. But it, I think they, they function very well, for me at least. They work wonderfully as sort of contemplative uh, scenes and they really have that great power on the imagination that perhaps Hurley's, most of Hurley's photographs don't. And do we know what the impact was of these photographs when they, when they did come back to Britain? What, did they do the job that Scott and Shackleton had hoped of raising awareness, raising funds, you know, being the PR machine that they had anticipated? They were enormously powerful. And um, Ponting's images, both film and photographs, started to appear in Britain before the news of the death of Scott uh, became public. So uh, despite the, the great delay between getting things from Antarctica to New Zealand and then out to the rest of the world, the public were already watching film of Scott and his men on the ice. And they'd seen some of Ponting's photographs. And there was a great interest in the story. They really were um, showing a part of the world that people knew very little about. And there was enormous enthusiasm and excitement. And then, of course, these wonderful, optimistic uh, images of Scott and his men were still being viewed when the news arrived of Scott's death on top of the fact that he had succeeded in reaching the South Pole. So there's this tragic story emerging, and this juxtaposition was extraordinarily powerful. So when Ponting returned and started exhibiting his images, uh, he was phenomenally successful. And if, so much so, in fact, that it, it's caused some problems with other members of the crew because they thought Ponting's success translated into him uh, making a lot of money, into some financial success, but it didn't at all. Ponting didn't make a great deal of money out of this. He made a great name for himself as a photographer, but he was more or less devoted for the rest of his life to telling the story of Scott through the photographs and the film. And uh, he was not so concerned about the financial effect of this. But they were, there was tremendous public interest and he put on an exhibition of his work in 1913. And this exhibition toured around the country to various different venues. So it was widely seen by lots and lots of people. Okay. Um, maybe, I'm, maybe I'm overly romantic, but I was, I was much more drawn to, um, to Ponting's photographs than I was to Hurley's in the exhibition. Um, as you say, because they're more contemplative, perhaps. Mm. Um, which... Am I wrong in, in, in thinking that? Which one of them was, is the more technically accomplished photographer? I think that they, they are actually both uh, extremely technically accomplished photographers. There's no doubt about it. It's rare that you have this combination of uh, great technical achievement with extraordinarily powerful narrative and the most remarkable landscape uh, that there is on the earth. And the combination of, of these things, both in the case of Scott and Shackleton, means that we get very powerful photographs. But I think it's, it's that difference between Hurley seeing himself mainly functioning as a documentary photographer, while Ponting seeing himself more as an artist photographer, that means we end up with quite a different set of images. This also uh, translates into the way that they chose to present their images, though. Uh, the Hurley photographs are generally seen as quite small prints. 
they use a process called gelatin silver uh, printing, which is um, essentially a black and white with shades of grey uh, process. That's the most common way for producing black and white photographs. Ponting, on the other hand, has produced very large prints, the sizes of, of posters, um, and he uses a process called carbon printing. And this is uh, both a very time-consuming, handcrafted process. It's also seen as a very artistic process because it allows the photographer to introduce different pigments into the printing. And Almost any colour can be chosen. Ponting chooses to introduce blues and greens primarily. And this is because he's trying to recreate the colours that he sees in the ice, in the landscape. And I, I, we know this for sure because he writes about this in his, in his account. With being in Antarctica, he talks frequently about the colours that he encountered. And so him using these pigments in the photographs is a way of recreating that. So I think he, he's very much um, not just about telling the story, but it's about recreating or capturing the atmosphere of what it's like to be in Antarctica. OK, last question. Which, which, which are your favourite photographs? Which are the images that we ought to stand in front of and, and consider and, and try and spot interesting things in? I think for me, um, the photographs by Ponting that I'm particularly drawn to, uh, there's, there's two of them. One is extremely well known and one is less so. The very well known one is the uh, ice grotto, which is the teardrop shape uh, grotto that's formed by um, ice freezing into a sort of circular shape and Ponting has positioned himself so that he's looking through the grotto towards the Terra Nova ship that's uh, on the sea in the distance and the description that Ponting gives of this is that he, he talks about how from the outside this was bright white uh, iceberg but once on the inside it was a symphony of greens and blues and purples and this swirling effect that you get from the ice along with the colour that he introduces through the printing process together with what is quite a modern vision of the landscape really is it's an extraordinary photograph and it's become very well known but rightly so it's, it is a remarkable masterpiece the photograph that uh, is perhaps less well known is the one called the Castle Berg, which is uh, a photograph of a giant iceberg which is in the shape of a castle. Um, it's a beautifully composed photograph and it contains in the, in the corner, sort of juxtaposed against the iceberg, the little silhouette of, of uh, a figure. And this is something that Ponting does quite frequently in his images, so you get a sense of the scale of the landscape that he's working in. It's also the most beautifully printed carbon print that I think we have in, in, on display in the gallery. And it's absolutely perfect. It looks as though it was produced yesterday. And it's quite remarkable because, of course, it's almost 100 years ago that it was produced. So those two images are my particular favourites. Are there any of Hurley's that particularly stand out for you? The images by Hurley, again, there are two groups of material that I think are particularly remarkable. The sequence of photographs that he took as the endurance was being crushed beneath the ice is remarkable, both for the 
the images that he's produced, which are extremely uh, accomplished uh, technical images, but also because of the dedication that he showed in staying out on the ice for almost three days in order to ensure that he didn't miss a minute of this ship being crushed, um, putting himself at considerable risk as well while he was doing so. Um, they are, it's, it's an extraordinary sequence and it, it's um, quite filmic in the way that it shows the ship gradually getting smaller and smaller and then eventually just disappearing under the ice. The other set of images that are more moving are the photographs that were taken when the men were on Elephant Island. And at this point, Hurley has lost his main camera with the glass plate negatives. He's reduced to using a handheld camera with film. And he's producing photographs that are consequently much rougher, much grainier. They're not as sharp. But he's still documenting what's going on. And they're on Elephant Island for about four and a half months. They have no idea if Shackleton is going to be successful in finding help and coming back to get them. So there's this great um, determination to keep on going, to keep surviving in what are just appalling conditions. And Hurley shows that through his photographs. But then in the midst of this sequence of, of really depressing, grainy photographs that, that just, you think, oh, how, how did they survive? There's this one photograph which shows the landscape and it's framed by icicles falling down and he's still finding beauty in the landscape even in these dreadful conditions and that's the photograph that I find particularly moving amongst all of the others. That was Sophie Gordon, photographic curator at the Royal Collection. The exhibition, The Heart of the Great Alone, Scott, Shackleton and Antarctic Photography is on now at the Queen's Gallery, Buckingham Palace, until 15th of April 2012. There is an entry charge. Sophie Gordon is also one of the expert curators featured in the forthcoming Radio 4 series, The Art of Monarchy, which is starting next month, so do look out for that. Indeed, she's written a commentary on a family portrait of Queen Victoria in BBC History Magazine's February issue, which goes on sale on the 31st of January in the UK. That's all for this week's episode. Next week, we will consider that curious skin-bound volume, and we'll also look at the great divide between Europe and America. BBC History Magazine's weekly podcast is recorded in Bristol and produced by Dave Gibson. Thank you, as ever, for listening. Goodbye.